1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Reducing cost demand proactively allows us to
2: avoid rushed or unilateral decisions when it is too late. It will make it possible to plan the savings in the most efficient way, minimizing the
1: impact on our people and businesses.
3: Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. My name is Aitor Hernandez Morales, author of Politico's Living Cities Global Policy Lab. The voice that you just heard was Kadri Simpson, the EU's commissioner in charge of energy, announcing that the bloc's 27 countries reached an agreement to voluntarily cut their gas demand by at least 15% over the course of the next eight months. They're doing this, of course, because of Russia's war in Ukraine. The EU wants to reduce its reliance on Russian gas, but that's easier said than done. If it's a particularly cold winter, or if there are big disruptions to the supply of gas from other places, like the US or Africa, then this week's deal just isn't going to cut it. Weathering those eventualities would require cutting consumption by roughly 20% across the EU, but actual savings from this deal are expected to be closer to 10%. We'll dig deeper into EU-Russia tensions with our podcast panel in just a minute. And later in the podcast, we'll take you on a journey to Sweden to visit a city that's redesigning itself for women. But first, let's turn to our podcast panel. So joining us in the studio, we have Ilya Gridnev, our newest colleague on the Brussels politics team, making his podcast debut. Hi, Ilya.
0: Hi, great to be here.
3: Eddie Wax, our agriculture reporter based in Brussels. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Aitor. And joining us from Paris, Clea Calcutta, our French politics reporter. Hi, Clea. Hi. Eddie, we've had you on the podcast in the past to talk about the growing global food crisis as a result of Russia's war in Ukraine. Last week, the United Nations brokered a deal between Russia and Ukraine to unlock the exports of millions of tons of grain. But could you tell us a little bit more about what we need to know about this specific deal and whether or not it will be enough to alleviate the food shortages and rising prices that we're uh, currently experiencing?
4: So yes, with pleasure. Basically, this deal was brokered, yes, by the UN, but also uh, with Turkey's involvement. Turkey held uh, several rounds of talks between different leading politicians leading up to last Friday in Istanbul, where the defence minister of Turkey and uh, Ukraine's infrastructure minister signed one piece of paper and then a separate piece of paper, which uh, supposedly was a mirror deal, was signed by Russia, Turkey and the UN as well. So that was because the Ukraine and and Russia refused to sign the same piece of paper because obviously they're at war. So ultimately this deal, if it does hold, should help Ukraine to restart its huge maritime exports of grain, which go all over the world to lots of countries in Africa and the Middle East, which are very dependent on uh, crops grown in Ukraine to feed their own populations. But the real question now is, can this deal hold? Can this deal survive? Shelling, for example, of by Russia of Odessa, of the port of Odessa, which is the major port concerned by this deal. So I think Russia over the weekend was really pushing the limits of, uh, of this deal and seeing immediately, at just less than 24 hours after it was signed, how far they could push things and almost testing to see whether the deal would hold. And it looks like uh, I just spoke to the in infrastructure minister of Ukraine, Alexander Kubrakov, uh, who actually signed the piece of paper in Istanbul last week. And he said that the ships are hopefully going to start moving out in the next week. So for the time being, we're, we're just looking at a situation where ships should start leaving those Ukrainian ports within a few days, I think.
3: Okay, so we're here in Brussels, so uh, I have to ask, where was the EU in all of this?
4: Well, the EU was certainly playing a very uh, behind-the-scenes role, if it was playing much of a role at all. From what I've heard from talking to people they were supporting the UN initiative, uh, Kubrikov, the infrastructure minister of Ukraine, was saying that, you know, The EU was playing a useful role in terms of uh, supporting the UN's initiative because this all came from Antonio Guterres, the secretary general of of the UN. They were putting pressure on, on Turkey as well as the UK was doing that. So, you know, the EU wasn't directly involved in the negotiations, but I think they were sort of quietly pulling the strings or pulling some strings behind behind the scenes.
3: Okay. With that in mind, uh, Clea, we know that one uh, European leader has uh, been particularly active this week. That's French President Emmanuel Macron, who has been in Africa. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about what he's up to down there?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, uh, Macron is visiting three countries. He's been to Cameroon, Benin, Guinea-Bissau, and he is on a tour of largely Francophone Africa. And um, it's very much a visit aimed at boosting French influence on the continent and pushing back against Russian influence. So at the same time, we have Sergei Lavrov, the uh, Russian FM, who's also in Africa. And so uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron is keen to sort of like put across what Europe is doing for Africa and push back against their influence. So he was very much there to promote his farm initiative. So that's an initiative that's aimed at sort of trying to reduce stockpiling across the world, but also to uh, help Africa become more independent. And so therefore, he was there to try and push back also against that idea that, uh, which is very largely promoted by Russia, that the sanctions taken by the EU are the ones that are impacting food prices across the world. He was there to say that's misinformation. In fact, what's happening is that it's the war in Ukraine that has sent prices soaring. So very much trying to push back against the Russian rhetoric there.
3: So on the topic of Russian disinformation, we can, of course, bring Ilya into the conversation. Uh, Macron's trip is coinciding with that of another notable figure, and that's Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. You wrote a piece this week with our colleague Mark Scott about the messages, or as, uh, as Claire mentioned, the propaganda that Lavrov has been spreading during this tour. So could you tell us a little bit more about what he's been saying about the EU down there?
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, those comments from Macron were quite telling, and and in a way, the only response or engagement to Lavrov's comments. And that's the point of the story in many respects that we wrote, that there's Russia and Foreign Minister Lavrov pumping out all this uh, rhetoric and lies in general, and there's not much response from the European Union. So while there is uh, this battle for hearts and minds on the African continent, uh, you see the European Union having their Brussels... Africa-EU meeting earlier this year, the question is what is the actual uh, outcomes of these kind of meetings when you have the Russian foreign minister traipsing around Africa saying that the West is uh, creating all these evils and all these challenges on the African continent and seemingly they're making progress on on that message and it cuts through. And when you look at some of the data um, that my colleague went through in terms of the shares and the likes and the Twitter sort of traffic, those lies if you will or misinformation or disinformation seem to be far more amplified or far more shared than the EU's rhetoric on Africa or the EU's attempts to try and promote the good work that they do so we're sort of well we what we did was we pointed out that while it might not be true or it doesn't seem to be actually the reality on the ground the sentiment or the idea seems to be what's sticking and a lot of the problems are faced with Facts like the colonial history of European nations. And I think certainly that's what Macron is trying to do. And one of the, um, the constant angles that the Russians use is this anti-colonial sort of rhetoric, which is, is quite ironic, or I think a few people have pointed out at the sidelines that while they wage an imperialist war in their own backyard and their war and invasion of Ukraine, they talk about the ills of history in, uh, on the African continent from the European masters. Eddie, you had something to add?
4: Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that uh, the head of the African Union, Macky Sall, who had a quite a controversial trip to Russia um, last month, or at the end around the end of May, early June. Um, actually, tweeted about this agreement on grain that was that was signed, and he was uh, celebrating this agreement and pretty much taking some credit for it, saying that this was the objective of my mission that I that I had when I went and met Putin in Sochi uh, in, on the 3rd of June. Um, so I just think it's interesting there that you know African leaders, that even the head of the African Union thinks he can, you know, doesn't really need the EU. He can he can skirt around the EU. He doesn't need them to broker a deal with Russia on his behalf. He can go and talk to Putin himself obviously, he's taking a lot of credit for this. And he wasn't around the negotiating table in Istanbul. But, um, you know, that just shows maybe that uh, even though the EU is working in the shadows on this deal, it, that also stops it, uh, you know, taking the credit.
3: Claire, let me uh, pivot back to you. As As Ilya was mentioning, uh, part of the complication here is that uh, European countries have complicated colonial legacies and uh, and overcoming that is, is difficult in this context. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about what uh, French President Macron is doing to address this issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, he he is trying to address that. And there is an understanding at the Elysee that it is a problem in sort of, you know, building, you know, relations with African countries. And what he's done in Cameroon is that he said that with which had a quite bloody independence war with France is that they would go to open the archives about going back to colonial times and uh, try and sort of, you know, shed a light on the history. And that way they will be able to move forward. In Benin, uh, what he's saying is that he's, you know, France is working on returning works of art. I mean, it's it's always difficult because the thing that Macron has said about uh, relations, for example, with Algeria, is that these past colonial uh, wars are often instrumentalized by current regimes that aren't democratic to basically... Gain either an advantage against France or basically to blame France for their current failings. What I would say just broadly about the sort of fighting for influence in Africa is that France has a big failure in in recent years in that it's and it's pulling out right now. It's uh, its last bearkan forces from Mali, and that is where the Russians have you know the mercenary forces of Wagner have have been very successful in replacing France, which, you know, fell out with the government after a coup in recent years. And so that was a real central part of France's presence in Africa, was this fight against jihadism in the Sahel. And and now they've lost that. So they're obviously looking through this visit and through others that will take place in sort of trying to replace that central action that they, they were having
3: okay and just before we end I want to go around and, and ask you all just briefly is there anything else that EU could be doing to uh, really make clear that it is making an effort to make a difference on global food supplies is there a key part of the message that you guys would say Brussels is failing at getting across or that it could do a better job of getting across
4: well I think the EU was slow off the mark I think Brussels was slow off the mark when it came to seeing the food crisis of course the first couple of months of the war everyone was focused on the the military stuff 100 percent, and that and that was completely normal when it seemed like kiev was going to be overrun yeah but you warned early on but I, we did warn early on and we had an interview with david beasley the head of the world food program but maybe that's not that's not what i was trying to say um <laughs> But I do think that, um, you know, the EU was slow off the mark. It didn't get its messaging out there on the sort of food impact of Russia's war. That allowed Russia to build up its own narrative. And actually, when it comes to the international uh, coalitions and the international attempts to coordinate the global response to the food crisis, there was a French plan. We've seen Macron's touting it now in in Africa, saying that he's officially launching it, even though, of course, it's been launched about (laughs) at least once before. And there's also a German plan, which is being pushed through the G7. Uh, Meanwhile, the US has its own ideas of how it wants to respond and the World Bank's involved. So the EU could have been a lot faster and been off the mark and maybe brought in the UK and maybe brought in some other allies and really had a genuinely concerted global response to this, uh, including the UN agencies. But instead, you know, its slowness has allowed a complete uh, concatenation of different international alliances to build up. And I think that maybe just uh, confuses things.
2: I suppose I mean what I noticed in in uh, Macron's visit just now is that while you know he's putting across that message about food and about you know support from Europe he also as you know a democratic leader coming from a democratic country can't help but address the problems of dictatorship and that is something that Russia doesn't have as a problem. I mean, it doesn't have to address the problem of lack of democracy in certain countries, and so therefore, at the, while he's saying we're going to support you with that, he's also, you know, criticizing African countries for not saying that there's a war in Ukraine and to sort of being slightly ambivalent towards Russia, and so you know, all these things sort of undermined the main message of his visit.
3: Ilya, it seems surprising that you know six years after Brexit, the EU still can't seem to come up with an effective strategy to combat uh, misinformation. Is this just another example of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sort of new to the scene, and I found it very strange because I've been speaking uh, with EU officials all week and trying to give a free and fair opportunity to get their point across and to offer a platform for them to sort of say what they're doing. And you know, I, I mean, you get these very Anandine statements and these platitudes that really, you know, you could have just pulled off the website and uh, you then speak to people off the record behind the scenes and they tell you all sorts of interesting issues and, and all the great hard work that they're doing. And then you say, well, why don't you say it publicly? And then you sort of see people kind of recoil in horror. So... I don't know. I, I, is it the way the sausage gets made? Another phrase that I'm learning in the European Union sort of parlance. But yeah, it's it does seem a bit odd, but obviously um, there must be, uh, you know, a reason behind the mystery.
3: There you go. Start telling everyone about what you do and how well you do it. Well, so I'd like to thank all our panelists for joining us. Uh, Ilya, thank you. Great to be here. Eddie, always a pleasure. Thank you. And Claire, delightful to have you. Thank you. Right after the break, EU Confidential is going to take you to Sweden to explore a city where local leaders are tackling climate change and urban equality by redesigning streets specifically for women.
0: Hold up, what was that?
3: And now EU Confidential is going to take you far away from the Brussels bubble and head to Sweden to tell you about a city redesigning itself for women. I'm joined by my colleague, Giovanna Coy, who's going to tell us about her reporting trip up north. Hey, Gio.
5: Hey, Aitor. So, on the surface, Umeå looks like a lovely, ordinary city in Sweden. Uh, It's on the eastern coast, about a seven hour drive north of Stockholm. It is a university town, uh, lots of students and young people there. There's a river running through the centre. But when you look a little closer, you start to notice things that you don't often see in other cities. Crosswalks, for example, the warning signs portray both a man and a woman figure. And many schools or streets may carry the name of women, which often isn't the case. That's true. Now, these may all sound like small details, but they're all examples of a city that puts women front and centre. on the
2: left side, you see the
5: female sign which is official street sign in Sweden since 2008. This is from a tour called the Gender Landscape Tour and it's organised by the city of Umeå to show the work that it's done when it comes to gender equality.
3: OK, so a city designed for women. How did, how did this come about?
5: So I think, you know, Sweden has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to gender equality and Umeå in particular has had a head start Since 1978, a gender equality committee has weighed in on the city administration's policies from a gender perspective.
3: Right. And this is important because cities have historically been designed by and made for men. As we know, much of our urban landscape is shaped by the ideas of Le Corbusier, which was that wildly influential French-Swiss architect who lived during the 20th century, And in the 1940s, he came up with that modular system, which was that golden ratio that to this day is used to establish the height of elevator buttons or the distance between steps on staircases.
5: Exactly. And the system was based on these imagined proportions of a good looking policeman in English detective novels. (laughs) And he argues they were always six feet or 1.82 meters tall, which is very unfortunate for Europe's women who on average are only 1.67 meters tall. So in practice, that means women are forced to live in cities with benches that are slightly too tall, ATMs that are slightly out of reach, and subway carriages that are slightly too far from the platform.
3: But Ume has tried to flip this on its head, right?
5: Exactly. So I spoke to Charlotte Westerlund, a city councillor who chairs the Gender Equality Committee, and she explained to me that the city's approach is comprehensive. So she said it's not only project-based meaning that it's not an afterthought or a checkbox that you tick, but it's really part of everything that the city does.
3: So in practice, how does this work?
5: So the city employs two gender equality officers, Linda Gustafsson and Annika Dallin.
3: And what's their job? Is it to periodically remind policymakers that women exist?
5: Essentially, yes. Uh, Their job is to ask the right questions at the right time. So they can have a say on all of the city's projects, from the big planning strategies to the design of a park and they make sure that gender equality is taken into account. Here is how Annika Dalin explains it during the Gender Landscape Tour in Umeå. In uh, Umeå, the Umeå municipality, we have an overall goal for gender equality, which is that the municipality should strive to create conditions for women and men to have equal
2: power uh, to shape society as well as their own lives.
3: So, Gio, tell me about some of the projects that make Umea such a trailblazer when it comes to gender equality.
5: Yeah, sure. One of my favorite projects is located in the Orsidernas Park. Uh, it's a very central park. It is a beautiful mixture of green space and urban architectural pieces lining the Umea River. And as I walked by the river, I saw this big blue steel carousel gazebo.
3: So what makes this gazebo so special?
5: Well, as we discussed before, a lot of the public infrastructure is designed for men. But this one instead is built for women and specifically for young girls. So the proportions of the structure itself are those of young girls. The seats are smaller. It's in full view of the street above and the riverside path. And there are even Bluetooth speakers to play some music. It is a lovely and safe public space to spend some time in, which is what Umiya's young girls had asked for.
3: Great. Uh, So while we're on the topic, is there any other example of infrastructure that you'd highlight as being particularly gender sensitive?
5: There's this uh, pedestrian underpass that goes under the central station. It's about 120 meters long, and it was redesigned specifically to make it safer and more accessible. So the previous tunnel was very dark and narrow. It was also very steep, which made it dangerous for people in a wheelchair or people pushing a stroller. Whereas the new underpass is very wide, very well lit. Uh, the other side of the tunnel is visible from the entrance. And visitors can also leave through an additional exit halfway through if they don't feel safe.
3: Okay, so Gia, when we talk about gender equality, there are these products that have these obvious visible effects and, and benefits for women. But how does this sort of planning impact the general population at large?
5: Well, as Gustafsson put it, urban planning for women takes both critical thinking and creativity. And this kind of thinking will definitely be crucial when trying to tackle UMEA's next mission, which is to slash emissions and adapt to climate change. Uh, Actually, UMEA is committed to being climate neutral by 2030. Linda Gustafsson explained to me,
1: When it comes to climate change, we need to make changes fast. And when you make changes fast, it's sometimes easy to forget about the human perspective. It's easy to forget about gender equality.
3: Okay, so how does a gender equal city tie into the idea of climate neutrality?
5: Well, First of all, women, uh, particularly in poorer households, are more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And they also tend to be left out of decision-making processes. What what struck me in Umia was that city administrators acknowledged that prioritizing gender equality can also be a tool in the fight against climate change. Oh, wow. Travel surveys and studies conducted in Umea, for example, show that men are a lot more likely than women to use the car in the city. There's a 2020 study that was commissioned by Sweden's innovation agency, which found that if men travel like women, Sweden's emission from passenger transport would decrease by nearly 20%.
1: We spend a lot of money on new technical investment. We have to change behaviours and challenge the norms that are connected to, for example, the car.
5: That again was Linda Gustafsson when I spoke to her back in Umea at the Gender Landscape Conference in June.
3: Awesome. So, Gio, I expect some people might roll their eyes at all of this and see it as some kind of woke police moment, but I gather that's not how these officials are seen in Umea,
5: right? That's correct. Uh, I actually asked Linda about this, and this is what she said.
1: I'm not seen as the internal police that goes around and telling people what they're doing wrong, but... Gender equality is seen as a development issue for the municipality. If we don't work with gender equality, we're not going to have a city where people want
3: to live. Right. So it's been a few weeks since you visited Umeå. What are your main impressions now? And more importantly, what can other cities in the EU or even around the world learn from the infrastructure and the cityscape in this city?
2: Uh,
5: Well, I think that what Umeå showed me is that Uh, When other cities think about urban planning, they often think of it as a one-size-fits-all checklist. So you do some things and you will have gender equality. But UMEA shows that it's not the case. Uh, It is actually a process. So urban planners and other workers at the municipality must really take a deep look at the city, ask questions... And think about how to approach projects in a very nuanced way. And they really have to get to know the city and the people in order to design it in a way that works for the people they serve. Another thing that really struck me is that local action really, really matters and can really influence the work that other cities across Europe are doing. Uh, for example, in 2019, UMIA was selected as the lead partner in this Gender Landscape Network. It is a network that's organized by Urbact, an EU-funded urban development program. And the aim of this program was to involve and bring together cities across Europe to redesign the cities for women. And that's when really something that was put in place, put in practice in a small Swedish city can really be exported and become a model for other cities in Europe. So Ume is no longer this small Swedish student town, but is actually a trailblazer in gender equality and a way to show other European cities what is possible when it comes to gender equality.
3: GeoCoy, thanks so much. Thank you, Aitul. We'll be sure to include a link to GeoStory Story in our show notes. Her piece is part of Politico's Living Cities Global Policy Lab, which is a year-long project looking into the way that Europeans relate to the cities in which they live. So uh, throughout this year, we'll be looking at urban quality of life, how Europeans move around and use urban transport, the way that cities can be made more green, healthier, and even what determines what makes a city survive and others fade away. So make sure you follow it. We'll include a link to the series in our show notes as well. And that's it for this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you're listening so you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed it, share it with a friend, a colleague, or someone who you think would also like the show. We love to hear from our listeners with ideas for guests or topics, so please get in touch by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Aitor Hernandez-Morales in Brussels. Thanks this week to our editor, James Randerson, our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, and to our intern, Namratha Prasad, for her hard work over these past months. And thank all of you for listening.